Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. If you do not tell the truth about yourself, you cannot tell it about other people. Is a quote from English writer Virginia Woolf. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our guest today, a globetrotting executive who took a professional half-time to write a book which encourages us to explore and define our own social legacy at the intersection of our sense of justice and the resources we have on hand about purpose and living with more authenticity. Our guest today, dialing in from Shanghai, is Emily Chang, Chief Executive Officer of McCann World Group, China. Prior to this, she held a variety of leadership positions and roles at Starbucks, Intercontinental Hotels Group, Apple, and Procter & Gamble. Emily is also on the board of SOS Children's Villages and the author of The Spare Room. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners and followers from all over the world, please don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And for our listeners in Chile, Greece, and China, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In today's special episode, Emily shares with us her fascinating journey, propelled by a penchant for intellectual challenges that has seen her lead across geographies and cultures. Having built a career in the heart of the modern consumer with some of the world's most well-known brands, Emily speaks about innovation and the realm of possibilities and gives us insight into the differences and similarities of commerce in China and the United States. Lastly, Emily touches on the concept of social legacy to inspire us to live and lead with renewed intention and authenticity, to break down walls and do extraordinary things. So sit back and enjoy Head, Heart and Soul. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the States. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, as my parents were still finishing their degrees and then ended up spending most of my childhood in upstate New York. I guess as an Asian American, what was it like growing up? I think more than anything, I was a child of immigrants. So people may relate to my background depending on um, where they come from because 
Because I think, you know, you grew up poor, you grew up culturally unaware of your surroundings and with parents who aren't able to help you navigate those surroundings, but it teaches you empathy, perseverance, grit. And I think it helps us become better cultural bridges over time as we, as we get older, because that background has kind of paved the way in many ways for us to understand what it feels like to be the fish out of water. What did mom and dad do? My father had a PhD at Georgia Tech, which is why we were down there where I was born. He has worked as a chemical engineer for his entire career. Now they're retired. My mother worked in a a variety of office jobs, but mostly administrative so that she could have a bit of a balance and, and be home with us. Now, before we launch into your very interesting career, did you start out life studying school of medicine and dentistry? Is that is that correct? I did. My undergrad was in biology with a minor in chemical engineering. So I was pre-med and then I got into med school and it was only after I got in when I realized that I'm not sure this is the right occupation for me. The things that (laughs) called me to it were not the things that would enable me to be really good at the job. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) So what was the right occupation? Who tapped you on the shoulder and who, uh, I don't know, gave you some direction? The first woman I still reach out to every couple of years to say thank you. Her name is Paris Watts Stanfield. And she came to my business school to do recruiting for internships. And because I was a finance MBA, Mm -hmm. she recruited me for a finance role at Procter & Gamble. And I'm eternally grateful to her because she leaned into this conversation and said, you know, I think you could do a corporate finance role, but I bet with your personality and your curiosity, you'd really like brand management. So that's how I got started with my internship in brand management, thanks to Paris leaning in and instead of offering me the role that she had on hand, kind of pushing the edges and saying, maybe there's something that's even better for you. What was the role you started as? I was the intern sort of, and then transitioned to assistant brand manager on the Bounce Fabric Softener business in 1999. Okay. So that's a pretty interesting time, huge amount of growth, economic markets are up. Consumerism is up. What are the key learnings that you picked up from PNG during those glory days? PNG operational discipline first and foremost. I think PNG has such an established way of doing things. Absolutely, a brilliant place to get started in a career. I think second, being very results oriented. Uh, third, grounding all of our conclusions and proposals in data and insight. I think I spent 11 years at Procter & Gamble. I moved roles within the company every two to three years, but I had an enormous um, training by working at this company where I worked everything from front-end innovation, where you wouldn't actually see the fruits of your labor in the market for quite a few years, all the way to Guangzhou internationally and moved to Arkansas to work with our Walmart retail team. So what does innovation actually mean at P&G? I think innovation is creating something that doesn't exist, but should. So everything from how do we innovate marketing, how do we engage with customers in ways that we don't but should, to product innovation, which is what product doesn't exist but should. You know, I'm going to super simplify and not do justice to the R&D department, but here's a very simple example. Always maxi pads serve a very, very good purpose. How do we create something that cleans floors and is highly absorbent? What if you put a maxi pad on a stick? (laughs) I'm not sure Swiffer is that different, right? (laughs) Again, I don't mean to diminish anyone's scientific work, but creating something that doesn't exist but should. And I think think the insight there is it's not just when you're in R&D or you're in marketing. Everybody should be innovating, which is looking at their surroundings, looking at their function and saying, what doesn't exist today but should? And what can I do about that? Emily, can you sort of give us an understanding of, and we talk about it so many times, but 
during that period of time, the work culture. And what I'm looking for is the aspects around the freedom to innovate. And how do you, I guess, mm -hmm. with the freedom to innovate and creativity, how is that maintained? You know, I've worked at a couple of different companies. I'd say at Procter & Gamble, um, there is a framework and there's freedom within the framework. In many ways, when you're in your younger years, that's really beneficial because you have a very solid footing. You have the resources around you to help you as you innovate. There's a process. There are questions to ask. There are ways to engage customers and potential customers. You know, then when I moved to Apple, for instance, there isn't a whole lot of that framework. Rather, there's the end goal question and your responsibilities to figure out how to get from point A to point B. So I think starting at Procter and then going to different companies like Apple really helped me develop a firm foundation. And from that foundation, I was able to sort of expand and answer questions in different ways. Yeah, okay, Emily. So just on that. So your career accelerates after about 11 years with P&G. You moved to some of the most well-known organizations, Apple, as you say, Intercontinental Group, Starbucks, across both China and the USA. Can you share with us or the audience, what, what are the key learnings? As you say, very different cultures, mm. very different structures. What's the takeaways for you? The takeaway is there's no one culture that's right. There's no one culture that works great. I think the context is really important because you go from a PNG where there is that framework and there's that operational discipline such that, and I mean this in the kindest possible way, they're not reliant on any one person, right? If somebody leaves the company, if something happens to someone, there's a framework and there's a process and there is an entire organization there to make sure the business goes on. I would say moving over to other founder-led companies like Apple and Starbucks, it's not always the same way, right? Instead, it is sort of a figurehead who has innovated and created this entire organization and its culture. And in that type of environment, I think things are very different. It's not as much about operational discipline. It's about agility. It's about what's possible. I, if you asked me in a nutshell, what did I learn at Apple? I would say everything is difficult, but anything is possible. That would definitely not be my one-liner for Procter & Gamble, right? <laughs> and then when I went to IHG, to your question, I would say the same. In a one-line, if I had to, and we didn't prepare this, but I'm just thinking out loud now, my one-line for IHG would be the power of purpose behind a service-led industry because everything is about people and how we serve our guests. It doesn't matter if you're sitting at the front desk and you engage with a guest directly or if you're at a call center answering phones or if you're designing the website in a way that is smooth and frictionless for your guests to use. Everything is about the power of purpose. Then what's the face of the brand then, Emily? That was your big challenge, wasn't it? It was. It was. The face of the brand is every touch point and engagement that the customer experiences. And this is why I believe so much in what we call O plus O. In the past, we would talk about above the line, below the line. Sometimes we would talk about customer journey. These are all, to me, things of the past. For instance, a customer journey gives the idea of a line, a starting point and an ending point. Mm -hmm. But the reality is nobody experiences a brand in a linear way anymore. Just like nobody experiences the brand online and then offline, it's fully integrated. I'll give an example. We opened the Starbucks Roastery in Shanghai. It's the second roastery outside of Pike Place in Seattle. Yeah, now can I add to audience, what is the roastery? 
Most people wouldn't even know what the roastery. Ah, absolutely. The roastery is essentially a customer facing manufacturing plant. It's where we actually roast the beans, but we create a space where customers can come in and experience. They can see the copper cask where the beans are roasting. They can see the beans moving directly into the, the areas where we're roasting. And so they can recognize that the coffee that they're drinking is from the beans that have just been roasted at this plant. And when we are creating this experience, you know, to your question, it's loud because it's a manufacturing plant. It's huge. It's 30,000 square feet. There are five bars, two floors. There's a bakery happening in the back. So how could I possibly think about a customer journey? It doesn't exist. So how do and can I unshackle a customer to experience the space how they want, when they want, and with whom they want? So that's why we partnered with Alibaba and we created an online experience, right? It was augmented reality. It was not to create shiny tools and leverage new technology, Greg. I think that's sort of a common pitfall for a lot of business leaders. Rather, it was saying, how do I create an outstanding experience for my guest? And then how do I find the right tools that enable that experience? So bringing online and offline together at the same time, allow our customers to not have to wait in line to find a menu, to fight their way to a cash register. They can simply download the menu, tap what they want, pay with Alipay, and then go about their way enjoying the space. They will be alerted when their order is ready. What am I going to get as a customer in the US versus a customer in China? What's the difference in exposure, feeling, and technology? For any one brand or in general? In general, but but if you've got any stories about brands, I certainly welcome them. Mm. I'd say the platforms are not as unified in America, for example. I, I, I'll tell you a little story. So I'm wearing these little bracelets my daughter made. So she started a business as a seven-year-old in China selling jewelry. And she actually made more money than you might think because we have integrated platforms here in China. She grew up in the world of BAT. Baidu is more of the search. Ali is more of the commerce. Tencent is more of the social. So my daughter, very young, built a business on WeChat. And she was able to engage with customers. She was able to get the quite or the, the delivery to come to the house and pick up shipments. She was able to manage all of this as a seven-year-old, fully integrated end to end. And it's not because she's extraordinary. It's because the platform is unified. Then when we went to Seattle, she tried to do the same with a slime business, right? Because that's every entrepreneuring child's dream. She found she had to go sell on Etsy with a very clunky Um, selling process. She then had to go advertise on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and they didn't really integrate. And she, she, she came home one day, she was really frustrated. She said, mom, the platforms in America are completely ununified. How does anybody do business here? And I said, exactly. That's the difference. (laughs) Emily, why is this? Is this history or was there just such a quick leap in China that the customer has benefited? That's an awesome question. I, I think it was the leap. And I don't think it was because anyone was smarter or better. I think the circumstances have enabled. So for instance, I'm going to quote my friend Vlad. He talked about email and he talked about credit cards. He talked about these types of things we're used to in the West as e-bridges. I thought this was just such an insightful phrase. Mm -hmm. It's an electronic bridge to something else. But in China, for instance, when people couldn't afford laptops, but then very inexpensive mobile devices came along, much of the country leapfrogged laptops and went straight to mobile. So we went mobile first completely. It's not because um, anyone had the foresight to say we're going to go mobile first. It's just the circumstances of the socioeconomic environment. 
Whereas um, we have digital payment here in China. In the States, there are still a lot of sort of grandfathered in uh, relationships and dynamics between banks with government. Here, credit cards are really seen as a bridge, right? And, and if you've passed that and you've already gone to digital payment, why would you possibly go back to a credit card? Is the customer always right? No. <laughs> I think if I go back to Apple, yeah. uh, well, you know, Steve was very well known for saying customers don't know what they want I and we're not going to go do research. Yeah. Because if we ask them what they want, they won't know how to say it. Rather, we have to, it's, it's the responsibility of us as designers to create something they want that will be so delightful they couldn't have even imagined it and told us about it. So what period did you join Apple? What was happening then? That was 2011. We were just opening retail okay. in China. So I was first responsible for the retail marketing organization for China as we were opening stores and then across the broader Asia Pacific region. And what were you tasked to achieve? What did the company want you to achieve in China? Great question. So when I came from Procter & Gamble, everyone's got a task. They've got a work plan. They have KPIs. I came to Apple and I had the privilege of a three-month immersion in Cupertino. And that was wonderful. So as I prepared after the end of my three months to embark to go to Shanghai and begin my new job, I asked exactly that question. I said, so what are my KPIs? What's my work plan? And they looked at me dumbfounded. They said, you're going to build the face of the brand. Sort of like, what part of that isn't clear? <laughs> because I think at the end of the day, that's what we were talking about earlier. It's not about the KPIs, the outputs that get to the outcome when you're coming from a structured, operationally disciplined space. Rather, it's the opposite, which is here's the outcome. Go get it however you can do it. Emily, so in building the face of the brand from you know Greenfield side, whatever you want to call it, how does that mm -hmm. differ to the face of the brand in the US and other parts of the world? I firmly believe that a brand is a brand. When people come to shop an Apple store, they don't really want it too localized, right? Because they want the international Apple experience. So one of the things I've always done working, whether it was in the global, the Asia Pacific or the China specific market is try to find those levels of consistency and similarity. I'm not one when I'm in the region to raise my hand and constantly say, China's different, China's different because a lot of things are the same. Human behavior, human desires are the same. The brand is the brand. So what we are responsible to do is identify those things that truly are different okay. and meaningful because they will have impact to the customer's experience and to our brand experience and how we show up. For instance, at Apple, one specific difference is foot traffic. Okay. If you look at one of the stores we opened on Nanjing East Road, Nanjing Donglu, yep. that store over October holiday, if I remember my numbers correctly, had 100 thousand people over the holiday week. A hundred thousand people. 000. You won't see that in an Apple store in a lifetime in some places, right? Right. So what's happening is people are so packed in the store that if you open the door to enter, five fall out. Right. So so this circumstance is different. And what it requires is a different level of queuing. It requires a different management of traffic and volume, and we're not used to creating signage for that. We're not accustomed to managing people flow this way, but it is a requirement when you've got so many people interested in experiencing your brand. It is your responsibility to make sure they have a safe and delightful experience. Am I more demanding as a Chinese customer versus an American customer versus a European customer? No, I think all customers are and should be demanding. I think what's different is Chinese have more choice and they're more fickle. Why? Because they can afford to be. 
Here, here's my, my view on this. I think the digital landscape has evolved so quickly. We are mobile first. We are digital payment nearly exclusively. And we do have these integrated platforms on BAT. So what happens is, for me, when I talk to my team, I talk about stop the scroll. That's what success looks like. Forget talking about loyalty. When you're scrolling through your phone, all I want you to do is see something so arresting that you stop the scroll. Well, how do we do that? Well, sometimes KOLs. KOLs are a huge thing in China, key opinion leaders, right? Because that face is famous and it makes me stop. It's just the influences, is it? That's right. The key opinion leaders, correct. Right, the celebrities KOLs. that are representing different brands. <laughs> okay, yep. But what you see is they are almost ubiquitous now. So if you start seeing too many influencers or KOLs, then that becomes part of the landscape as well. What's next? Live streaming. Okay. So then when you see somebody sort of moving live and, and you're interested in what they're doing, you might stop the scroll. Here's the other thing. Everyone's now live streaming. So everyone's moving and engaging. So again, it becomes part of the landscape. My question is what's next? How do you continue to stop the scroll? Because the Chinese consumer is not more demanding, but they're inundated by more messages. You know, the average consumer in a day sees 4,000 ads, according to APAC Digital. 4, How many do you think? 4,000. Can you believe that? No, I cannot. 4,000 a day. Yeah. 4,000 ads in one form or another in one day. Wow. So how are we going to break through? This is not yeah. about demanding. This is simply swimming, swimming in messages. So I think at the end of the day, that's why I, I really like my new job where I work at McCann World Group. It's about helping brands play meaningful roles in consumers' lives. You have to stand for something. And if you represent something meaningful and you take a creative approach that breaks through based on an insight that is meaningful and deep to the consumer, then you've got a chance of making a human connection. What is the secret then to doing business in China? I may have finally got the breakthrough. How do I consummate that and turn it into business? 4,000 hits it's, a day. I'm not going to buy from 4,000 people, am I? So one of them, mm. a couple of them are going to get through. But what makes me act, Emily? I'd say three things. I think there are three things. The first one is you have to know who you are as a brand and stay true to that. You're so inundated by messages, just like our consumers are, that it's very easy to see something cool and say, hey, I want to do that. Or, oh, that's completely great. And that's congruent with me. What you do is you start slivering away a little bit of your brand at a time. So if you aren't completely immersed in who you are as a brand and hold incredibly firm to that, it's very easy to cast adrift. The second one, I think, is purpose. I do think the Chinese consumers, especially Gen Z, they are looking for something purposeful. They're looking for something with more meaning. And it, it, everybody's saying this, Greg, but yeah. I think at the you really need to identify something that is authentic to your brand, that you can stand behind, and that resonates with consumers. Those things all have to be true when we talk about brand purpose. The third thing, I think, is a little bit nerdy, but it's about finding your addressable target. Because you can be very clear on who your brand is, and you can be very purposeful in an authentic, relevant way. But if you don't know how to reach the right person, again, cast adrift in an ocean of 4,000 messages a day, mm -hmm. you're still not going to be able to land. So, you know, one of the things I've done with my leadership team is we've laid out our vision statement. Because when you're in a, the midst of change management, you always want to have a clear statement that you've all engaged in. We talk about being your trusted partner that creates tailor-made strategy and creative that lands in market. That last part cannot be underestimated because design for all its best intentions, if it cannot land with the right target in the right time and the right way with the right message, 
it's only an idea. Before I come to your current role, which is exceptionally exciting, and I'm going to ask you a number of questions on that, what were the learnings from, from Apple? The second part of the question, Starbucks. Thousands of years, Chinese have drunk tea. Why are they changing? Is it internationalism? Mm-hmm. What's the motivation behind all this? Okay, let me go to the first question first. What did I learn about Apple? I learned to ask what has to be true. That's probably my first answer. Because at Procter & Gamble, you come in with frameworks. You're like, okay, these are the criteria that must be met for our project to proceed, right? We used to have something called a simple progress. I can't even remember what it stands for, S-I-M-P-L. And it was sort of the key gates and milestones that you needed to deliver against before you could launch. I think Apple had the complete opposite approach, which is, okay, here's the desired outcome. What has to be true to get there? And I'll tell you that mindset I think will serve me really well for the rest of my life and and even has influenced my daughter who who works alongside me in many ways because a lot of times I'll hear her say now like what what has to happen mom for that to to move forward. And that's a really different mindset. I I'm so grateful for my time at Apple and all that everybody taught me because I'll give you an example. We opened a store in Beijing in a place called Wangfujing and I'm watching this plaza open. It's got this massive LED screen. It's a huge corner of a massive pedestrian street. It's completely unpaved. And everyone's like, don't worry, don't worry. It's going to get paved. It's going to get paved. We need everything to be perfect, right? When the press come and we get ready to open the store. Okay, it's a week before. It's completely unpaved. And I'm like, guys, (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's going to take at least a full week to pave this whole thing. No, no, no. We got it. We got it. The people are coming. And at this point, I've decided to camp out. (laughs) I don't even think my Apple colleagues all know this. I camp out in a restaurant on the third floor of a mall facing my future store. (laughs) And I'm just watching because I'm like, it's not going to get paved. So it was literally three days before the store opened. And maybe there are a couple of tiles on the ground. And I'm like, guys, (laughs) Rome's burning. What are we going to do about the tiles? (laughs) And I think at this point, if you came from Procter & Gamble, you, your simple process has been thrown out the window. You're screwed. But at Apple, you think, okay, what has to be true? I mean, you, you actually sit down, you count the square meters, you count how many tiles, you count how many minutes per tile needs to set, you count how many bodies you need, and then you recruit. I remember we brought in our agency. I remember we brought in our security firm and we changed into jeans and everybody went out and started tiling. you serious? <laughs> I'm dead serious. And so we made it happen. It, it happen? was not perfect. We had to redo it later. But, but you know, that mindset of what has to be true to make this happen really just opens a whole new world of possibility if you approach work and life that way. Oh, oh no, hold on. Just on that, be true. Is that be true to yourself? Be true to the brand? Be true to what I stand for? What, do, what does it encompass? What has to be true in order to realize this objective? So that can be anything. It can be, and I think, I think that has to do fundamentally with resources. Yeah, right. So a lot of times we say, no, that's not possible. Hold up. Of course it is. What has to be true? Do you need a million dollars? Do you need 600 people? Do you need two more weeks? Do you need a renegotiated contract? Do you, you know, what has to be true in any manner of speaking? And that goes back to your first question of what is innovation? Yeah, right. What has to exist that doesn't? in order for us to realize this goal. We're talking about innovation. You're making me go from tea to coffee. How do you do that? (laughs) But that's an enormous amount of innovation. It is. It is. I think 
I think Starbucks has always been about the third place. We are not a coffee company, right? We are a people company serving coffee. And I think Howard's quote is spot on. And because we are a third place and we are all about serving people and we happen to serve coffee, I think that's that's the key. I'm I'm super super humbled by the opportunity to have worked at Starbucks and to have been part of his legacy. The way that coffee culture was introduced here, I think it was about that. It was about how do we serve people? And when you speak to a barista at one of our stores, you will realize they love coffee, but why are they so passionate about it? It's because they love you and they want to engage with you. And coffee is the language through which they can engage. You're going across <laughs> to McCann Group. What made you make the move? Well, I stopped for one year to write a book and I called it Professional Halftime. And I kind of said, look, I want to pursue this passion project for one year. Okay. And then, you know, naturally when you call it halftime, you realize, okay, I'm entering the, uh, the second half. What do I want to do? And what's interesting is headhunters tend to ask you two questions in the beginning. The first is what industry? The second is what region? That's the basic ones, not the good ones. Correct. I agree completely. I agree completely because here's the thing. I've worked in a number of industries and I love them all. I've worked in a number of regions and I've loved them all. So neither of those questions help me in any way indicate what I'm interested in. So instead of answering the questions, I decided not to take any calls until I could clearly articulate what I wanted. And it was a little bit of soul searching. I went back, I have a folder back here that has about 22 years of Myers-Briggs assessments, strengths finders, and all kinds of other things I've done. And I went back through all of it. And ultimately I ended up with my own model. Everybody's got their own, but for me, it's not about industry. It's not about region. It was about three things, head, heart, and soul is how I identified with it. Head, I love an intellectual challenge and I want something that's a big, hairy, audacious problem that isn't quickly solved. Now, there are lots of those. So, you know, did I consider startups? Absolutely. I had some conversations. But the other thing that's really important to me is heart. It's about people. And I love watching people succeed. I, I don't need to be on stage. I don't need to have accolades for myself. But when I see my people thriving, that gives me immense joy. So then I started realizing, okay, that combination, maybe entrepreneurialism isn't the best option. Where can I support a bigger team of people where I can enable them to have a better work-life balance, where I can help them think through their own career development? So then you start thinking, okay, intellectual challenge, heart, which is about building into people. And then soul comes down to, I just wrote a book called The Spare Room, and it's all about purposeful leadership and living with more authenticity. So Certainly, I've got to find a company that matches that ethos. So when I thought about those three things, I was assessing a number of options. And McCann, I chose to join McCann specifically as a company okay. because we are at this changing point of no longer being an advertising agency. We want to be your trusted partner. We need to figure out how to engage end-to-end -end from high-level strategy to who we are as a brand, to how we show up, to our creativity, to how we land and fully deeply understand the digital ecosystem. That's the partnership that I wanted as a client that I think agencies must pivot toward. And what a privilege to get to be a part of that intellectual exercise. Heartwise, looking after a couple of different agencies, about 400 people, I get to engage with and train up and support and, and work alongside some people. You know, the average age at one of our agencies is only 27 years old. Wow. So much fun. <laughs>
<laughs> so much fun. And then from a soul standpoint, what McCann stands for and what we want to do and the people that we bring and who gravitate to us as a result are my kind of tribe. Best time to be there? It's so much fun. I'm having such a blast. It's early days, but I think what's great is I love change management. I, I love trying to imagine what doesn't exist yet, but should, and then figure out the steps on how to get there. I love people and everywhere I've worked, and probably it's a fair statement to say, every company will say they're a people business. Yeah. But when you're in advertising or when you're in any human capital arrangement in an agency, all you have is people. That's it. It's the simplest PL you'll ever see. So if you don't have the right people, if you can't attract, motivate, inspire the right people, you have no business. So that's what's so motivating to me. So what did you inherit, Emily? What, what, you, what you were told from those who offered you the role to what you walked into in Shanghai that day, did it stack up? Yes, it did. I, I work for one of the things that's really important to me is who I work for. And my boss, Alex Lubar, is amazing. Amazing. He's a big reason I joined the company. He was very transparent. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And he said, here's what we want you to come in and do. Look, if you're coming into a change management operation, but you're picking up the pieces, <laughs> it's a really tough thing. But when you're starting with a really good foundation, some good people, a great DNA of a company and some outstanding clients, you're driving change from a position of solidity and not a position of devastation. And that's what makes the job so much fun every day. Uh, you said you took some time off and you yes. wrote a very interesting book called The Spare Room. Mm. The journey of your family taking in a small baby. Theo, pretty moving, incredibly moving. Was this a catalyst movement for your own social legacy? It was. It was before Teo. I think he was our 14th kid. Okay. At some point, my husband and I, we were only dating when I had my first kid. I was only 20 years old. And it was not an intentional thing as much as I stumbled into it. I was driving and saw a little kid beaten up on the side of the street, and I just couldn't drive by her. And then- This was in the US? Where was this at? This was in the US in upstate New York, just outside of University of Rochester. Okay. I was heading home. Yeah. And then over time, every every so often, a different pers young person or a child or a baby of need ended up literally on our front porch. Each one individually found us. I don't know how else to say it. So for instance, uh, one young girl who's not featured in the book okay. lived with our next door neighbors. We were in an apartment and they already had six children of their own. And she was a baby that they had begun fostering. And okay. when the American family decided to go home for the summer, they didn't want her to go back to an orphanage. And they said, well, you live next door to us. You've kind of seen her. Would you mind just caring for her while we're gone for the summer? So that's how we had one of our spare room kids. And she was born with spina bifida. That's why she was in an orphanage. Um, then after that, because we had been associated with an orphanage, the orphanage reached out and said, hey, we've got another kid. And we said, no, 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 We don't really do this thing. It's really because of our neighbors. But that was Teo who came to our home. And they just kept calling us about him because of that connection with the orphanage. And then after, let me fast forward many years later, mm -hmm. my husband used to push Teo in a wheelchair and push him to walk Laney to school every day, our daughter. <gasps> So one day, Teo was adopted. I'm obviously fast forwarding through a lot of storyline. And a woman off the street who was accustomed to seeing my husband as they both dropped children off in the morning paused and just said, sir, I, you don't know me, but may I ask a question? Is your son all right? Because I, I'm used to seeing him every day. And my husband's reaction was, uh, it, he's actually great. He was adopted. And thank you so much for asking. And she went on her way. Two to three weeks later, she paused him again. And she said, Sir, I don't know if you remember me. I asked about your son. Could I buy you a cup of coffee? 
And he said, sure. So they went to a coffee shop and she said, I just remembered about your son. I'm a teacher and there's a badly abused girl who's in my class. I'm worried she's not going to make it. I bring her home with me sometimes on the weekends, but I have multiple children of my own. Would you consider giving her a spare room? So to your question, every single kid has come to us through a very different way, but there's always sort of this lovely thread woven through life, even if it's three to six months between one kid to the next, where they've always managed to find us. Emily, what do you think then? This is quite a bold, for many people are going to say, wow, what a bold act and a terrific act, Mm. but I couldn't do that. What's the answer Mm. to that? The answer is writing a book. That was actually the catalyst for why I wrote the book. I completely disagree. I think, I truly believe the more people I meet, and I'm 45, so I've met a lot of people, everybody is designed to be extraordinary. I could not say this with more conviction. If we're not living extraordinary lives or feeling that we are making an extraordinary contribution, we simply haven't found our thing yet. And that's why I felt really strongly about writing this book. And if you've read it, you'll know I, I reveal all my own uglinesses because the point is not that we are good or that we've done anything extraordinary. The point is we found the intersection of our offense and our offer, right? We understand that thing in the world that offends our family, that offends me personally. And our offer is the spare room. We will always make it available because now we've met so many kids. And and you, if I'm anticipating another question, which is how do they all find you? Why do you think yep. this is happening? Yep. I think it's because we say yes. And when you say yes to something, which you are position to deliver against, I think it finds you again and again, and it becomes easier and easier for you to say yes. So what I deeply desire with this book is to help other people find their thing. And you know, that thing, I call it your social legacy, but it's really, what is the thing in your society, however you define your society, whether it is your work, your home, your neighborhood, your country, or the earth, what is the thing that you're going to leave behind as a legacy, which means you've left it better than you found it. If you find that thing, you'll find that you're opening your spare room. It's a euphemism. It's not actually your spare room. For me, something looks difficult because you wouldn't do that. But for me, it really is very easy. And that's why there's so many different stories in the book from people who worked in the military to a lead performer on Cirque du Soleil to a physical therapist in Arkansas. Anyone can find that intersection of that thing and do something so extraordinary. And and I hope it helps them live more intentionally. And for those of us who are in leadership positions in the workplace, it helps us lead more authentically because people see our heart. It's not just words and it's not just who we are as leaders in the workplace. It's who we are as humans. And that breaks down so many walls that nothing else can. Emily, I, I've read your book and I, I was absolutely fascinated. And it was a terrific read. But why do we all put back, why do people have barriers to their thoughts or limitations to themselves? Not everyone is like you, Emily. And why aren't they? Gosh, every time you ask a question, I feel like I have three answers. Okay, <laughs> three answers again. One, people might know the thing that offends them, right? They're like, this is my thing. It is animal abuse or it is ocean plastics, but they don't know what to do about it. Yep. Two, They might say, I know what I can contribute. I have time, I have money, I have XYZ resources, but I don't know where to direct it. And then three, regardless of your offense or your offer or where you stand on those things, I think it's fear. I think it's fear of the unknown. I think it's fear that I can't really make a difference. I think it's fear that I'm going to put myself out there and what if I fail or what if I don't have an impact or what if I get hurt or what if, what if, what if. But fear 
is very much how we define a potential outcome. So even in writing this book, man, I mean, talk about imposter syndrome. I've never written anything in my life, right? Who am I to go write a book? (laughs) But I can't let a fear of failure or a fear of looking stupid stop me from doing something I feel passionately about. I think this message can benefit other people. And so I have to overcome that fear. The best way to do it tangibly is to say, what are the potential outcomes? What is the array? And the potential outcomes are it lands and nobody gives a shit and that's fine. (laughs) It could be, you know, a hundred people read it and they feel slightly better. It could be, it becomes a movement and people start saying, what's my spare room? I do want to do this. Worst case, it could be failure in the sense that it never gets published. Well, all those possible outcomes that are positive to me far outweigh the negative. So that sort of mathematical equation helps me overcome the fear. What was the motivation, Emily? When did you get out of bed one morning and say, hold it, I'm having a pause here. I'm going to stop. I don't have to return that phone call to that next headhunter and look at that next opportunity. I need some breathing space and I'm going to apply myself in a different form than I've never done before. Where did that all come from? It actually started when I was still working at IHG in 2017. I still distinctly remember the week. Two things happened. One thing was- Not three? Uh, I brought- Sorry? Not three, th- not three no, things yeah. happened. Two things. <laughs> Two things happened. It's bizarre. I don't know if we can handle it. The first thing was I brought Teo to the office. I try to bring my kids to work. I bring work to my kids so everybody can understand that we're one integrated human and we have one integrated life that we live. Teo came to the office and multiple people said, I could never do what you do, which was to your previous question. And I felt that's hmm. not right. Of course you could. You just haven't found your thing. How can I help you? And as we started to talk, I found this concept of offense and offer really resonated and simplified, distilled something very complicated to something very simple. The second thing that happened later in the week is I went to a big corporate event and a lot of people already had very established titles. And there was this sort of overarching theme over the dinner that was, is this all there is? Okay, I'm already a managing director. I'm a CEO. I have the family construct that I've always imagined. Now what? Life is far from over, but there has to be more. So those two things really felt like, yes, of course there's more. Yes, of course you can be more. How can I help people identify that in a tangible way? And so coming from the business world, I wrote this book, not only sharing my own stories in in a slightly vulnerable way, but more importantly, I think the reflective exercises are written the way business people are accustomed to engaging, right? So it's very tangible. You have an action plan at the end of it. And and it it was that week in 2017 that I started thinking about a book. And then I kind of dabbled in it. I did a TEDx talk and put it on the back burner. Ultimately, it just sort of wanted to be written and I wanted to try. So so I found a good opportunity last year to take some time off and really go at it. Social legacy. What's yours going to be? Because I'm surely still in build mode, isn't it? It is. The way I talk about our family social legacy. So there are some exercises at the end that kind of help you pull this thing together, right? My, my offense yep. is these vulnerable, abused, marginalized children. I will never yes. walk by one. My offer is our family We love bringing people into our home. We love building into them and expanding ourselves to include them. So that center, the social legacy, I call it, it's a good kibun. And one of the people who lived in our home was from South Korea. And one day he was sitting there and he said, this home has good kibun. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, there's no direct translation, but the idea in Korean is it's a comfort for the spirit. And I thought, oh, that's so lovely. 
So yes, that is my social legacy. I want to create a comfort for the spirit with our home, with the people who stay here, with the people who I get the privilege of supporting and leading at work. I want to create comfort for the spirit where you, you know, we talk a lot about DE&I right now in the world, right? It's not just about diversity. It's not about feeling included. It's a sense of belonging. It is knowing my spirit is comforted being here with you in your space. You're going to make me ask the, the old question. What is diversity then for you? Oh, I love this quote. So if diversity in the old days was all about numbers, like we need X percent with color skin, X percent with this gender, then inclusion is about sort of bringing them into the fold, right? So diversity is being asked to the dance. Inclusion is being asked to dance. Belonging is feeling like you can dance like no one's watching. So for me, that's that's what it's all about. It's not about the numbers. It's not about being asked to dance. It's, you know, I had this really deep life lesson with the kids in our spare room. Sometimes you ask, do you guys want to come with us? Well, you know, by sounding inclusive, what you've done is isolated a person because you're basically saying us, right? So I learned one thing um, with, with somebody named Tim who lived with us for a year. I no longer asked. I said, hey, Tim, we're going on vacation. And then we would go on vacation together or, Hey, we're going, we got invited to a wedding. Let's go. Instead of, you know, we've been invited to a wedding. I'd love it if you would come. They're both equally positively intentioned, but one feels inclusive and gives you a sense of belonging and the other does not. Emily, let me ask you a little tough question. As a female Mm -hmm. working in both China and in the US, Mm -hmm. does one put up more roadblocks than the other to get ahead? And if so, how have you dealt with it? Because I'm all for what you've said, but I'm sure it's never been easy. You've got challenges along the way. And particularly with what's going on in the world at the moment, we talk about diversity, we talk about barriers, but you're someone who's been success. You're talking about the spare room. What are the challenges you face in that regard? If I'm honest, I think it goes back to your question on brand. There's more in common than there is different. And it comes down to preconceived notions. The preconceived notions may be a little bit different from one culture to the next, but ultimately, if I'm with a group of colleagues who are all men and I'm a woman, and God forbid I happen to be wearing a skirt and high heels, for sure, someone will ask me to get coffee. <laughs> someone will hand me a blazer. <laughs> you know, it's not. It's and you not reckon malicious. that's on, and you reckon that's on all continents? I haven't lived on all, but I, I think it's probably still a little bit of something that has been trained in people. You know, it's not an intentional thought. She is a woman and therefore she's likely inferior. It's not. It's a, it's an intuition. It's a reaction. So I think we talk a lot right now about allyship. We talk a lot about representation. Why is that important? And, you know, in, in the marketing world, why is it important to tell a different story and represent differently? Because those intuitions, they're created. Our thoughts Largely, while we're not brainless people, they are largely informed by the inputs that we receive every day, aren't they? They have to be. So our inputs are shaping what we believe and how we engage with the world around us. If inputs largely show me that women will get coffee or that women will take our blazers because they tend to be in a subservient role, that's what my mind is going to assume without even cognizantly thinking about it. So I think two things are important. One is creating the right story that positions people of true equal equality and equity. I think the second thing is to exhibit grace. So if I am the white male in a room, 
maybe I will stop and graciously consider. Before I ask her, what might her role be? Perhaps I take a moment and ask her, what do you do? Before I ask her to get me coffee. On the flip side, I can respond with graciousness. I don't have to respond bullishly or defensively and say, who do you think you are? Don't you know who I am? I can recognize you're not being badly intentioned. You've heard a lot of tapes, you've seen a lot of stories, and you've reacted impulsively. So why don't I pause and say something like, do you know what? I'm tired too. Let's go both find a cup of coffee. I've now saved your face. I've answered in a way that enables us to build a positive relationship instead of humiliated or angered you or angered myself. So if I was going to meet with a Chinese organization, Emily, Mm. how do they think and how do they make their decisions? What's the hierarchy go through? compared to, as you say, your experience from the Westerners? There there are lots of differences, and organizations are very diverse, so it's very hard to categorically answer that question. I think state-owned enterprise and government organizations are quite different than local companies, which are quite different than multinational companies. I'd say culturally, the couple of things to have in common are relationships matter very much. So if I come in and I want to begin a negotiation, if I sit at a table and say, okay, you tell me what you want, I'll tell you what I want and let's find the middle. You're never going to get very far because there's no trust. In the West, mm, I think okay. I think that sort of practical framework works because you say yours, I say mine, and then let's find where the intersections are. It's, it's quite practical. But here, you never get to the conversation until there's a, a modicum of, of trust. So you start by having dinner. You start by inviting you to my office. And then if we feel pretty good, you know, you will invite me to your office. And then we should maybe bring a broader group together. I'll bring some of my team, you bring some of your team, and we'll have a bigger meal. (laughs) You know, if we really get get that vibe going, maybe we'll go to karaoke together. (laughs) It's about building those relationships. And it's not ultimately about holding a microphone and singing. No, it's about shared experiences. Because it's through shared experiences where that where the layers get sloughed off and the true people are revealed and we can say, oh, I know who you are as a human and I like you. I think I could trust you. Okay, we're two months in now. Let's talk. Emily, what's happening in China at the moment? What's the, um, what's the atmosphere like? The atmosphere is very, very positive, I think. Okay. We, we had obviously COVID uh, early last year, February, March. But after just two or three months of working from home, people kind of went back to the office. Um, The business is doing well. People are thriving. You know, I think we always had the behavior of wearing masks. So we continue to wear masks. Now maybe there are more temperature checks or green QR code checks. But other than that, life goes on. Um, people are growing, culturally experiencing new things. I think there is a dynamic that I find very interesting and I'm personally moved by, which is Gorsh Hall, which is mean? national. It's nationalistic pride. And it's this idea that made in China, created by China is the thing. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, let's take beauty as an industry, for instance. It mm-hmm. used to always be uh, the, the Western brands were the aspirational brands, right? We would bring them in, we would pay a premium in order to experience and use Western brands. And then you had what was called K-beauty. Korean beauty became the new aspiration. It was a lot closer in, but gosh, Koreans are beautiful and they have wonderful products and we would import those. Now we've got C-beauty. We've got some amazing brands like Perfect Diary and Florisys. These brands are killing it. They just jump to the top in many ways. And you know, our company has the privilege of working with 
with iconic brands like L'Oreal, Because You're Worth It. And I, I love that brand because it has been there for you know 50 years and stood for something meaningful. I also want to respectfully say the florists and the perfect diaries of the world are doing a great job as well because they're designing to the Chinese aesthetic. They're saying we are designed by Chinese, for Chinese, made in China. Wow, I didn't, I didn't really recognize that. I'm interested in your thoughts, Emily, in regards to, I think you've mentioned in the past, you believe QR codes and WeChat are going to continue to play a pretty big role in China. Is that correct? Well, I think QR codes are a tactic, right? It's, it's a something that allows you to reduce friction in a digital experience. I think WeChat is a social platform that has very much integrated. There's this one visual that you'll find a lot on the internet where there's one WeChat icon and it equals about 150 apps from the Western world (laughs) because WeChat has integrated absolutely everything. So yes, I do think these integrated digital platforms are allowing us to accelerate engagement with consumers online and offline. They are creating ways for us to understand who we're serving better, which allows us to personalize, to get more clear on addressable targeting, to then serve up the right content at the right time, which is delightful versus the wrong content at the wrong time or in a channel that the person doesn't care about. All of those are at best a waste of money, at worst, irritating and causes somebody to actually actively dislike your brand. So I think these types of digital platforms and ecosystems are hugely enabling, but it is upon it is our responsibility to understand them and leverage them appropriately. So from all your experience, Emily, is the customer experience far better in China than than in the US than or than elsewhere from what you've seen? My initial answer is yes. I think because we have a way of integrating. For me, customer experience comes down to delight. You cannot feel delighted if something is clunky or frictiony. So because things are so frictionless, they're so seamless, they're so integrated. Yes, I do broadly think customer experience is better here because it is easier to design and to execute. So we've got a lot to learn from China then. (laughs) I'm learning every day. I'm barely keeping up, Greg. (laughs) There's so much happening and it changes all the time. Emily, you're renowned for setting yourself some pretty big goals, some pretty big targets. I think you call it the big thing every year. What's that? Well, I like this idea of novicehood, this concept that I'm going to try something that I don't know how to do, that there's a high likelihood of failure because that degree of discomfort, it's like flexing a muscle that you don't use often enough, right? When you flex it, it gets stronger and it teaches you, it reminds you to be humble. It reminds you how uncomfortable you can feel and how people probably feel that way around you or who work for you. So I actively try to find those moments every year. One year I tried to run a half marathon. One year was about See if I could swim for an hour straight because I hate swimming and I, I hate that feeling of not being able to breathe. One year was learning the drum because I always thought it would just be badass to be able to play the drums, you know, and one year was the TEDx talk. So once I started this, our whole family embraced it. Every year we each pick something that's sort of our each of our big things. And the goal is let's not try and target too many New Year's resolutions. Let's pick that one thing and figure out how to do it. And even if we don't do it well, let's be very clear that's not failure. It's successfully trying and being brave enough to do something that we hadn't done before. So the spare room, the book, that was this year's challenge? The book was this year's challenge because I do like to try and separate my personal challenges from work. Though they are integrated, I don't want one to kind of bleed into the other in terms of my resource and my focus. So 
how do I launch this thing? And how do I, I, I've hired a marketing intern, even though I do look after a marketing company because I wanted (laughs) to keep it separate and to think, how do I build my own website and do it myself, you know, from scratch? And how do I create my own social media presence? So that has been the challenge for the year. I'm learning constantly. I did my first Instagram live last week. (laughs) How'd it go? It was actually brilliant. It was brilliant. It was good fun. And it's just when you approach life with this sort of positive experiential mindset, I think you draw like-minded people. And then we decided we had about 50 people on the live event. We've decided we're going to create a Zoom event so they can actually all see each other's faces and create sort of a a little bit of a spare room club. (laughs) Now, Emily, if I um, buy your book, where's the proceeds going? All the proceeds to the book have been donated to SOS Children's Villages. It's a nonprofit board that I sit on. And when they first reached out to me, I was so touched by them because they do exactly what our family does, which is they create homes and safe places for people who are marginalized or or vulnerable. And having touched 7 million kids, they've obviously got a much bigger scope than me. Um, But with such a like-minded philosophy, it's been a pleasure to be on the board for about two years. And and I told them up front, look, anything that comes from the Spare Room book is going toward this organization. Emily, can I take you back a few years, all those days ago when you went to Apple? Was it a tough process to get the job? Was the interview tough, I guess? Yeah. So was the interview tough? That's that's probably the yes part. The no part was I wasn't looking. I was at Procter & Gamble. Uh, I had been looking for roles. They had reached out to me. In fact, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the honest truth. I got an email from Apple recruiting and I thought it was spam. I, I thought, surely Apple recruiting doesn't just email you, you know, and it had somebody's name with a little pink Apple logo under it. And I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> But it really was them. And then after a couple of exchanges, uh, I wasn't looking to leave. And in fact, my husband and I have this agreement, which is one person's the career and one person's the job. Okay. We can both be successful, but sometimes we have to take turns. And at that point, my husband was in the career. He was going after his architecture degree. And I was committed in my, I was a marketing director at that point to just support him because my role was a little steadier. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't looking. Uh, that's why I'd say it was really easy. But when Apple asked me, and they're very smart, right? Because it is the, it was the sexiest brand in the world at the time. And Cupertino and Infinite Loop was maybe the sexiest place to be. It was the easiest offer to say, Won't you, wouldn't you like to come and eat a lunch at Cafe Max and just come see Infinite Loop? I said, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> That's the offer. And they said, look, no strings attached. We know you can't leave right now. Just come. So I went for the day and the process itself actually was a joy. I really enjoy speaking to intellectual, passionate people. Was it grueling? I guess, yes, because I talked to probably nine people in the course of a day, but really I left it super energized because I really enjoyed the people I talked to. And that's what I said about McCann too. I want to work with people who I feel like are my tribe because then it doesn't feel like work. So by the end of that day, they basically made the decision to an extend an offer. And then I needed to go talk to my husband about what we wanted to do next as a family. Fair enough. And the reason I asked that now, you're the face again, you're the leadership role. What mm-hmm. do you look for in those people coming to join your company? I would actually say not the traditional things. For me, when we were recruiting for Apple, the number one word that came up was interesting. We wanted interesting people. I thought that was such a unique way to recruit. I'd say right now, when I look for someone, I want somebody curious. Because if you're curious, not for the sake of uh, 
collecting and hoarding knowledge, but for the sake of becoming better and adding value back out in the world in unique ways, that's the number one thing. Because if you're curious and you want to learn more and then you want to take that knowledge and contribute meaningfully, we can teach other stuff. Emily, what is, in your view, and you're, I'm sure you're, you respect, you've just spouted a couple of times during this discussion, what is authentic leadership versus leadership? <laughs> I have three things. <laughs> That's a surprise. I, I know. My mind just works that way. It must be. There's a formula somewhere in there. The first thing that comes to mind, there's this lovely woman who worked for me at IHG, and she paid me one of my nicest compliments ever. And it's become my aspiration. I don't think I'm there yet, but she said, you are a Sandy leader, which is a 3D leader. And I, I thought, what does that mean? She said, when we need you in front to hold the flag and show us where to go, you lead from the front. When you need to come alongside us and work overtime and help us through a problem, you're sitting at my side. And when there's an opportunity to give me the limelight, you stand behind me and push me forward. I don't always do that. That's me at my best, but it's who I want to be all the time. So I think that 3D leadership is the first thing. And the reason that answers the question of authentic leadership is you have to be an authentic human being. You have to be willing to be courageous and be in front, but you also have to be humble enough to stand behind. And then you have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and work alongside. That's the first thing. The second thing that comes to mind is if you want to be an authentic leader, you have to take down the walls. There are walls of awe, there are walls of hierarchy, and I think it's very important to intentionally and optically take down those walls. So for instance, when I came to McCann, there was a beautiful office waiting for me. Can I tell you, I walked in and I took a picture for my family. I was like, man, (laughs) this is great. And then my next reaction was, this is so not me. This is not the office of an authentic leader because it's on the highest floor. It's away from all my teams. It's big and beautiful with black leather furniture. This does not speak to who I am. So I gave up that office and I feel really blessed that I have a CFO who shares the same philosophy. He gave up his office space. We moved down to sit with our teams. And in fact, we didn't just move down. I didn't just shrink my office by, I think, 75%. I took an office on the inside of the floor. So I have no windows. It's just a little box. It's probably not much bigger than this space right here. And then I opened up everything and took down walls so that all of our teams can sit by the windows. This took a little bit of money. This makes me uncomfortable, like basically on a daily basis (laughs) because I have no circulation. But it is an intentional thing that is optically clear that I put people first. So that that's my second thing. The first thing is 3D leadership. I think the second one is taking down the walls. You know, and the third thing is to be an authentic leader, we have to be very clear in who we are authentically and be whole as humans. If we're not at our best, if we're not rested, if we're not physically healthy, we're not spiritually well, we can't lead other people. So I think it's really important to build in the time for ourselves and not become martyrs and not brag about how much overtime or how exhausted we are. Rather, we should be proud that we have family time. We should be proud that we had time to work out and that we feel physically fit and energetic because that shows that we are a leader that you can trust. You're not worried I'm going to fall over any day. And I'm the kind of leader who you feel will totally understand if you want to go take a day for mental wellness, if you want to go have a break, or if you decided you need to go pick up your kid early today. How do you engage? I understand that. I know it's going to come through with passion and everything else, but how do you engage me? And then how do you inspire me? Hmm. 
I think engagement has to be intentional. It doesn't happen accidentally. People don't accidentally stumble into a CEO office and say, oh, hi. (laughs) They give you space. So you have to engage by intentionally taking down those walls. I have a lot of rules on my calendar. One rule is my meetings all last 50 minutes. So people sometimes think there's a problem with my calendar. No, it's 50 minutes for a reason. Because A, I can't transmogrify myself from one place to the other. I need walking time. But B, if I give myself 10 minutes, I can take the long way and say hello to people and make myself visible and stop and give. I don't push myself, but I give people the opportunity to say hello or come over and show me something. I have to make myself available. So that's that's one is those 50-minute meetings. I think the second one is creating forums. That's my job. That is not going to happen accidentally as well. So we will intentionally create forums. I have a weekly CEO lunch where we invite two of every agency to come in because I get to meet them. Importantly, they get to meet each other. That wouldn't happen organically in the elevator because we work on different floors unless I'm creating that forum for people to meet. So bringing them together, not just to do work, but to have lunch allows them to get to know each other's people, right? And kind of start taking down the walls with each other. So, so to your question on how do you engage, it has to be intentional. You have to create the forums. You have to create opportunities for people to find you easily without moving outside of their comfort zone. Look, is it comfortable for me sometimes to go to a floor and walk around with no agenda? No, it's weird. I will admit. (laughs) I hold my purse and I don't want to look intimidating. So I'm smiling and I'm just walking. (laughs) And sometimes, sometimes I'll do a lap and nobody will stop me and I'll just smile and go back in the elevator. But more often than not, somebody will stop and say hi or somebody will run over and say, oh, while you're here, let me ask you a question or let me show you this. But you know, there, there are times you feel a bit awkward and And at the end of the day, like that's our job as leaders. We have to put ourselves out there. We have to be uncomfortable because when we embrace that, we make it comfortable for the people that we serve to engage with us more readily and more accessibly. What's success going to look like at McCann in China? For McCann in China specifically, we have a thriving team of people who love coming to work is the first answer for sure. I think Two, we are intellectually stimulated by the work that we're doing. We're engaged and we feel proud of the things that we're creating. Uh, And three, I'd say, gosh, it's three again. My clients, the partners that we work with, feel glad uh, that they chose us to be their partners and that we build sort of these deep relationships. Some of my closest friends when I was working on the client side were the people who worked on the agency side. They still are. Gina, my friend from Guangzhou in 2002 is still one of my closest friends who I would call at the drop of a hat for something. And she, she was on the media side when I worked on Pantene as a brand manager. These can be really deep, meaningful relationships. So, so it's sort of employees first, and then it's the work we do and the creative product we create, and, it, and it's our clients who we get the opportunity to partner with. You've got a lot in your plate, starting up, taking the lead. So when are you going to make the time to think? I always make the time to think. So every morning before I get up, I have 15 minutes of just meditation. The phone is away and I force myself to have that space. I think it gets you off on the right foot for the day. You never start off on your heels because you're already receiving emails and requests, right? We follow the sun in any business now. So as soon as you wake up, you've got emails waiting for you. If you start with that, you're already responding. So how do you start your day with 15 minutes? It's 15 minutes. That's nothing of sitting down and looking ahead to your calendar and then just kind of having a moment of quiet and saying, what's my intention for today? What do I want to get accomplished? What does success look like at the end of today? 
that's the first thing on a daily basis. On a weekly basis, so so like I said, I have a million rules for my calendar. On a weekly basis, there has to be one day of call it sabbatical, right? Sabbath, right? So one day I don't work at all. I spend time with my family. And it's the kind of thing where you look around, you're like, what should I do next? You should have that one day a week of, gosh, I'm almost bored. Or do I need a project? Or who wants to watch a movie or play a game? If you don't have that kind of downtime, you're not breathing spiritually. And then on a monthly basis, I have a rule where one day a week I work from home. You, you might still be on video all the time, but at least you've chosen to be in a different space and to give yourself, you know, for me, it's two, two plus hours of commute time that's freed up. And what does that enable you to do? And then quarterly, so I do, like I said, lots of rules. Quarterly, I have one day every quarter where I go off and do a retreat. Sometimes I stay at a hotel for 24 hours or sometimes I'll just lock myself in a room overnight and I don't see my family. But I do think that sort of stillness and quiet once a quarter where it's just you and yourself and no noise is, um, is very healing and very productive. It doesn't feel productive. It feels anything but productive. But I think those, those are the moments that we need to create for ourselves. Pace of work between China or uh, Shanghai versus uh, U.S. capital city, something like New York, much difference these days? I think a mindset, I'd say. The first is, perhaps I would call it the definition of failure. In China, the mindset is, let's just get something out there. It's not perfect. Let's get it out and iterate and learn and move really quickly. In the U.S., I think generally we won't put something out there until we know that it's well-baked and that we have met all the success metrics. So if the U.S. looked at how China throws something out there, not fully baked, they might say, oh, that's going to fail. But the Chinese will say, oh, we're going to learn. I think that's a big difference. And as I think about that, the Chinese mindset is a great way to cultivate innovation because we're willing to just go out there and learn. I would say the U.S. expertise is more about a proper process, vetting, make sure voices are heard, less chaotic. As a result of that, it is a great way to cultivate optimization. So I'm kind of answering this as I think, but gosh, China seems primed for innovation. U.S. seems primed for optimization. So the actual process of decision-making with Chinese has accelerated or, or has it changed at all in your experience of going backwards and forwards all these years? I think it's just accelerated. I think what's interesting is the way we view innovation. So for instance, I remember when Groupon launched in the US, right? Everyone's like, wow, that's amazing. You win. <laughs> in China, WeChat launched. Everybody went, wow, that's amazing. I'm going to do one too. That's a fundamental difference. So when you innovate in the States, you win and you earn honor as an innovator because we respect it. In China, you innovate people respect it, but they say, I'm going to go do that too. And it forces the first mover, the innovator, to constantly keep innovating or else they're going to be out innovated. And I think that iterative approach just brings you to a different level, but you have to be messy and you have to be okay to fail or to put stuff out there that doesn't look perfect. Emily, if you were to look back all those years ago as a young lady walking through those doors of Procter & Gamble, what advice would you give her now? Be yourself. There's a woman I worked for, I didn't work directly for, Diana Shaheen. She's so cute. She used to call me Minnie. And one day she sat me down. I didn't know her that well. And she said, I see you in like a polo shirt and khakis. 
does that feel comfortable for you? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what we wear at Procter & Gamble. She said, no, you should wear what you wear. You should be who you are. We hired you for a reason. So don't cut us short. And I just thought she um, unleashed me to be myself. She's half of my daughter's name, in fact, because she inspired me so much. And I really believe that early lesson and the, the time she took to give me coaching was so, so valuable. So I think I would have told myself even earlier what Diana told me, which is be yourself. You were hired to be you. So don't try to join a company and conform to who they are, who you think they want you to be. Be yourself because that's who they hired. Emily, on that, thank you very much for taking the time to join us from Shanghai today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for your patience through the recording. Not a problem. You've been listening to No Limitations. 